Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Frances Barth was born in the Bronx in New York City and studied painting at Hunter College. While an art student, she also studied modern dance and performed in some of Yvonne Rayner's work at Lincoln Center and the Billy Rose Theater in 1968 and 1969. In 1972, Marcia Tucker put her painting Henning in the Whitney Museum Painting Annual, which resulted in a representation by Susan Caldwell. For the past 10 years, Frances has also been working with animation and video. Her video Regina, a short portrait documentary of the painter Regina Bogat, had its world premiere at the Marfa Film Festival in 2014. Her list of exhibitions and awards are just too long to list, but the highlights include the Joan Mitchell Award, an NEA grant, the Guggenheim Fellowship, and she is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Albright Knox, and the Whitney Museum, just to name a few from a very long list. She was a professor at the Yale School of Art for a significant time and was the director emeritus of the Mount Royal School of Art at Maryland Institute. I visited Francis's home studio in North Bergen, New Jersey, and we spoke about her youth in the Bronx, her formative years in New York City, and her explorations into dance and animation. A great talk, followed by a nice lunch with her and her husband, actor and director Ron Nakahata. Here's our conversation. So, anyway. so, so you did. You grew up in the Bronx. Yeah. Why don't we start there? How okay. was how was um, how was life growing up in the Bronx as a young kid? Are we on? Yeah, yeah, we're on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's no real start to these. <laughs> how was growing up in the Bronx? Well, um, I guess I, I, I didn't think about it. I had nothing to gauge it against. Um, it's just what you knew. Yeah, it was. Uh, I grew up in a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father had been in the Second World War, and when he came back from the Second World War, Metropolitan Life, the insurance company, built a project in the Bronx uh, that was kind of based on utopian ideas mm-hmm. of people with not a lot of money being able to live well. So. There were all these projects that were in quadrants. There were like four quadrants. And in front of our building, there was a little bit of chained grass. And on the, it was a seven-story building. And there was a woman, a a statue applied to the building. There was this big girl with a rabbit at her feet. And I remember there was one rhododendron bush. Mm -hmm. So... You know, when rhododendrons bloom, that was, that was like, okay, this is my knowledge of the country. Yeah. You know? And across the street, there was a rock formation that was really exciting to us because we thought, I mean, really, I had no, nothing to compare these things with. I thought it was like a mountain. And uh, it was dangerous. We'd climb on it. One time, my brother fell off of it. That was bad. Um... We, as kids, we just were out on the street playing. We had, just had to be home by the time it got dark. Um, 
So in terms of just day-to-day life, there weren't very many rules because mm-hmm. we were just out there. We would climb over this enormous fence to get into a playground that would be locked up at, you know, at a certain hour, and we would play stickball in it. I was a tomboy. Mm-hmm. And, um, but on the other hand, I went to a Catholic school that what, was full of rules. Was it local? Like yeah. close to where you Yeah, yeah. I, but it was about maybe five blocks. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, and you walked by yourself to go to school. Um, so it was kind of a tough, it was tough um, on, on the one hand, but I didn't get to go to Manhattan until I was 18 years old. You weren't allowed or it just didn't? No, it, it just didn't occur to anybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, where we lived, there was a Macy's, there was a movie theater, um, there was a grocery store, there was a deli. Um, it's just... Like, we didn't really go away on vacations. Yeah. Uh, my father, every summer, would go uh, away to the Army Reserves. Uh, so he'd just go by himself. And one time, we drove all the way up to Camp Drum near the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. That was our vacation. My brother almost drowned in the lake. <laughs> and then we went to a place that was... I don't know if it was Santa Claus or what it was. You know, it was one of those little fantastical places that you take kids to. And in going through the entrance, a big bee uh, stung my brother in the ear, and the stinger was in there. And and he was thrown to the ground, and... <laughs> And uh, they stuck mud all over him. <laughs> I remember Why? that. Why? Because that was the idea that, so he wouldn't have an allergic reaction. They stuck mud all over him. And then from there, uh, driving back down, my father hit a dog that ran out into the road. Oh, so that was like the one vacation. No, it doesn't sound like a vacation. No, that was, that was the growing up. Um, I guess I thought it was... I remember feeling like this is so boring, um, but then when I got to be a teenager, I was very lucky that uh, that I didn't get into trouble um, because then I could, my girlfriends and I went and hung out in a different area outside of what we knew, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it was rough, and uh, there were at that time, you know, people didn't have guns, but they had chains, and they had fights, and we would hang out in kind of closed schoolyards, and I sang backup with a street gang, uh, and they never came on to me because I, I was like this nerdy-looking, and of course, of course we didn't have the word nerd then, um, but I looked like this nerdy girl with long, straight, blonde hair, and glasses, mm-hmm. and they were older, and they were sort of protecting of me. So my so-called boyfriend was the guy from Philadelphia mm-hmm. who sang um, the Bristle Stomp. Kids in Philly are sharp as pistol when they sang Bristle Stomp, when they did the Bristle Stomp, right? And my cousin went out with one of the guys who sang in Duke of Earl. Oh, great song. Yeah. Yeah? Uh, but there was, like, nothing sexual going on. It mm-hmm. was just not 
I mean, at that point, when I was in high school, I was in an all-girls convent school. This was the Catholic school, like the yeah, the Catholic. Catholic school for grammar school up to eighth grade mm-hmm. was both boys and girls, but you didn't really talk to them. Yeah, and um, and you wore uniforms, and then. High school was over by the Whitestone Bridge, and I had to take a bus to get there. And the girls were totally in separate buildings from the boys. And if you were seen talking to them, you would get detention. So, I, you know, one one thing it did allow me to do was just do academics and study. Yeah. And uh, but also hang out with some girls who got into trouble. And I mean, we had a we had a fu- we were funny funny in a totally inappropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we would like do well. They they decided we were communists. Uh, it was a time when everyone had to read um, this book that was called "What You Should Know About Communism," mm-hmm. and they decided because we were sarcastic and funny, and we didn't know something about politics, and we would do these skits that roasted certain people um, that we were communists. So, I mean, that was my growing up. Wow. So how does, how does art enter your life in that environment? Uh, or did it the not? The only way it entered was my mother kind of with a crash. It entered with a crash. Uh, my mother was um, third generation born in America. And my father was not. My father had come over from Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And he was very handsome, and he was very tall. And um, they met in a social club, and my grandmother hated him and forbade my mother to see him. And, of course, my mother wound up marrying him. And my grandmother had spent her time trying to get my mother to be somebody. So my mother had piano lessons. She studied, she had singing lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got into Hunter College and she played piano for the orchestra. She was only there one year when her father decided that girls should not be in college and took her out. And then she actually knew stenography or studied stenography. And during, she married my father before he went over to the Second World War just before, and she worked for the FBI in the stenography pool uh, in New York. Mm -hmm. So um, when my father came back, he was really damaged, and uh, he had a regular job, but kind of all the poetry was gone that was part of who he was before Mm -hmm. he went. And my mother was this frustrated person because she wanted to be an actress. Uh, she could play really, uh, she could play the piano very well. She would get drunk and late at night she would paint and she would play the piano. Mm-hmm. And of course she would make noise and we lived in a project. And um, so I knew about, I mean I was, I knew about my mother's passion for these things. She would have me sit on the piano, and I would drape, like um, not a heavy drape, but a kind of transparent drape around me, like I was in a, a gown. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
she would play the piano and I would sing all these songs from the 1940s, including the introductions. <laughs> you just knew these from hearing them all the time, or? Yeah, she had sheet music. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember, you know, doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, until, you know, she, she really didn't have any support for anything. And um, she was not happy. Mm-hmm. And um, just coincidentally, and I can't believe that I'm about to say this, um, we had an upright piano, and my brother was in the Boy Scouts, and he had an axe. And my mother chopped up the piano one night with the axe, and the harp section fell to the floor and created a terrible vibrating noise through, we lived on the fourth floor, through the building. I can imagine. (laughs) And this was exactly the day that the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba happened. It's crazy. So everybody in the building thought we had been invaded. Yeah. And the police came. <laughs> it <was like> <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was just the piano that I just axed. <laughs> really? <laughs> right. So, I, I mean, I had this very dramatic growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the only contact with art was, I remember, somewhere in grammar school, we had to write something on one of three pictures. One was a Matisse. One was like a Sir Joshua Reynolds, and I can't remember the third, and I wrote on the Matisse. And otherwise we had competitions, like posters for Dental Week or, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And when I was in high school, the art class was taught by a nun, and we would go to the library and sit on the floor and draw this pathetic Hummel statue that was on the bookshelf. <laughs> or... And I don't know where, what drove this nun, she would have us design lingerie. I mean, it was, and it never occurred to us that this was weird or inappropriate or whatever. Right. You know? And so straight from there, I applied, well, I think that the art for me was an escape. Yeah. And... uh, I applied to Pratt. I had an interview. I didn't get in. Um, you know, I, I had no guidance whatsoever. Right. It was just me showing up with these things I had done, like a, scratching through India ink and doing a picture of a character from a Dostoevsky book. And I don't even know how I knew about the Dostoevsky book. And um, and I didn't get into Cooper Union. I was. At that point, it was like more than three hours, the test. You mm-hmm. had to sit in the Great Hall, and they gave you a lap board. And all of a sudden, we all had clay, and we had to make a figure with an animal. And so here I am, and I'm making like balls for the cat. <laughs> and, I, and I'm looking next to me, and this person had done like Rodin's The Thinker with a dog climbing on its lap. And that was like, oh man, I am completely in the wrong place here. Like, I am this kid who can sing on a street corner in the Bronx, but I am not getting into this place. And then we had these psychological tests that I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know how to answer these questions. I don't think we're going to pass. I'm going to pass. And the architecture component was to design a boathouse that could accommodate 17 people 
and you know have a slip for a boat. I mean, I'd never seen a boathouse yeah. or I mean it was just ridiculous. Yeah. So I got into Hunter College because I was I had very high scores otherwise, mm-hmm. and uh, and I really loved it. And it was a time when all these fantastic people taught there. And the first couple of years, I was on the dean's list, and I applied, and I was taking art classes, and I was studying French, and I was uh, studying European history. And um, I applied for the BFA program, and they didn't want to let me in because they said I was culturally deprived. And, um, but Tony Smith and Ron Gorchoff and somebody else said that they should let me in, and also I'd be the only art student on the dean's list. <laughs> so the grades helped. So the grades helped. And, um, and at one point I was going to quit, and Doug Olson, because everybody seemed to know what they were talking about, like they would talk about art in certain ways, and I, and I saw Doug Olson was teaching this color class, and I said to him that I was going to quit because everybody knew what they were talking about except me, and he said, they don't know what they're talking about. All you have to do is you have to start to look at everything and read everything and do it for the rest of your life. Inform yourself, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of miraculous. And light bulb. That's like a light bulb moment. Yeah. You know how in school, I feel like everyone has that one moment or, or you know, a couple moments that really impact them, you know, and that it's kind of like... Yeah, well, it was such a release, you know. You it can was, do this, sort of, yeah. you know, just... Try well, really hard. Also, everybody was an existentialist, so it wasn't doing something for a reason. Right. You know, it's not like there was, you weren't, uh, also, there was a, a big emphasis on you're not making pictures, mm-hmm. you're painting, right? Yeah. It was the act of painting. It wasn't about a product or a picture or anything. Also, all the Vietnam War stuff was going on. And I think it was 1966, they invited me to go to Al Held's studio to see Greek Garden. He had just finished Greek Garden. Where was his studio? His studio was on, uh, like, between 22nd and 23rd. I think that's Broadway. Mm -hmm. Um, It's one of those two that, you know, they kind of spin off there. Mm -hmm. And the painting was the whole length of the loft. And... I was intimidated, so I brought my mother. <laughs> that was not a smart move. But uh, anyway, there we were, and there were anti-Vietnam war, uh, war marches outside, and here was, you know, Greek Garden. And um, it was heroic. You know, art was yeah. heroic. And uh, really, really marvelous in some funny way because I'd grown up in, in this mystical Catholic environment um, where you would really get transported doing the Stations of the Cross and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, art was kind of like that. Yeah. You know, it was, it was pure. It wasn't contaminated. It was uh, noble. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, that's, and that was really important to me. So you felt, I mean, you feel in retrospect or just that that's, you kind of are nostalgic for that feeling in a way? 
I had to move here because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody, so we're in, you know, New Jersey. And I had a studio down on Van Damme Street. Before that, um, I was married to a, an artist, and we lived for many years on uh, right next to where the new museum is now, and mm-hmm. the new museums bought that building. So that building uh, on the Bowery, the second floor was Tom Wesselman, the third floor was Rosenquist, the fourth floor was me and Harvey, the fifth floor was Chuck Hinman, and the sixth floor was Will Inslee. And each floor was 5,000 square feet. So well, what was the rent? <laughs> it was two hundred something dollars a oh month. My God. Can you imagine? Yeah. So um, you know it, that was exciting. Yeah. And um, but then the eighties started to change everything. Uh, and I mean, everybody knew everybody in the sixties and seventies. There weren't that many artists. And um, like Mabu Mines was doing performances at just in empty warehouse spaces, and um, people were helping perform with other other people, and everyone was everyone's audience, and it was just all exciting. People, you know, they were inventing stuff, mm-hmm. and um, in the eighties, things started to change. And, of course, then there was money and there was um, careerism. And I think most of us who were older, that was a really bad thing. Yeah. You know, so just in terms of uh, modus vivendi. Because also one of the things was, I mean, maybe the men were more, I did this, uh, mostly men from... Um, who kind of hit their stride in the 50s mm-hmm. were different from people in the 60s. So maybe their ego is more involved in it. I don't know if it was a male-female kind of thing. Um, but I know personally I always kind of felt like I was the intermediary to try to make something happen right. as opposed to this is mine. I mean, of course it was mine, but it, it wasn't, uh, it just didn't philosophically function like that. Mm-hmm. It was about the painting. It was about the theater. It was about the performance, you know. And, um, and it was in, about risk and inventing stuff. And so that was all exciting. Yeah. And um, in, I'm trying to, I, I moved over here maybe 15, let's see, 9, 8, 17 years ago. And everybody said, oh, no, no one's ever going to look at your work again. You know, well, why would you do that? Right. And I needed to do it to get out of just what I felt over there. Um, and at one point, um, I, I had a just an intermittent, really nice relationship with Al Held, where um, he was very generous, and I was young, and I was showing at Susan Caldwell, and I was doing all these big paintings. And I was friends with Susan Kreil, who at the time was the was a partner with Jules Pfeiffer. And I was invited to go to, this must have been 1980, 
or maybe 79. And I was invited to a party, and um, well, it must have been earlier than that. So I met Al Held there. He came in, and Susan introduced me to him. And he said, oh, you're Francis Barth. I love your paintings. And I said, no, no, you got this reversed. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was in your studio in 66 and saw Greek Garden. <laughs> I obviously admire your paintings. And he came to every show I had at Susan Caldwell's. Mm -hmm. And um, we would get into these long philosophical talks. And then somewhere in the 80s, he came in over to my studio for a studio visit. And, well, before that, he had a retrospective at the Whitney. Mm -hmm. And I went to the, it, the opening, and I, I'm, I just get to the front of the Whitney, and I see him leaving, and it's like the beginning of the opening. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is your show. Where are you going? He said, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to Italy. And <laughs> so he left. And um, so here it was later. You know, I don't know when, how much later. He was in my studio, and we were having like a three or four hour conversation, and he was saying how he felt like a dinosaur. And um, I think there was a certain point where I just knew that I had to be, I couldn't function from any negativity. Like if I had any negativity in my studio, it just couldn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And I had to get out. I mean, look, if you're fighting a landlord trying to evict you for 14 years, that's not exactly a kind of easy place to be anyway. Right. And then the World Trade Center came down, and you know, and there I was, and, um, my, and my paintings were covered in an oily dust. Um, it's a toxic environment in more ways than Yeah, one. exactly. Yeah. And I just thought... I kind of have to find a place that's my secret garden. Mm -hmm. And um, and also there's this very unfortunate thing that happens. And I mean, I've, I have friends and we've all talked about this. And I have students that, four former students who kind of freak out about the fact that when you reach a certain age, there seems to be a dead zone of interest. It's like from 40 to 70. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> There's a dead zone of interest in you. In you. Uh, you know, so you know that I've taught forever, and you know, I, they actually made me full professor at mm -hmm. Yale, and then I ran a whole graduate school. And um, everybody was only interested in looking at my students' work. Mm -hmm. And like it was like, well, but like, at one I point, one that. student said to me, you, um, and this was at Micah, this wasn't at Yale, mm -hmm. but uh, this guy said, what are you going to do over Christmas break? I said, I just what I always do, I, you know, I work in my studio. He said, oh, you paint? <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> and I thought, shit, yeah. I'm the director of your program, and right. you don't know <laughs> that I paint? Isn't that amazing? You would think yeah. that they would uh, just look into their faculty a little bit? Yeah, so that was... And then something else happened around the same time where my students were fantastic. I loved them. I mean, look, at they were of all different media, and I got to pick them. Mm -hmm. And so I would have 27 students from all over in performance, video, installation, painting, sculpture, everything. I even had a fantastic girl band there. Nice. At one point. And... Um, so at the at thesis, right, the thesis mm -hmm. shows um, the 
the one of the deans, um, I guess he was the provost, his wife came over and said, oh my God, your students are so fantastic. You know, uh, oh, it's too bad. Do you, do you get to work anymore in your studio? <laughs> I, was like, I, said, I, I said, yeah, all the time. I don't know why everybody assumes that like you're it's not, over. it's over, yeah. you know, like you're helping all these people in their art, but yeah. like, you're not able to do it anymore. Yeah, yeah, I mean, where does that come from? So, um, you know, this was helpful for me to be here. And also, this is the best studio I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a one. pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be an embroidery factory. And, you know, like there was no way that I could find anything like this yeah. in the city or Brooklyn or Queens or anywhere. Yeah. And... Um, well, I think a lot of students are asking that question now, too, because it is so expensive to live in the city. It's yeah. like, where do you go? And and a lot of people are becoming more resourceful and finding different locations, but still having a connection to a community, you know, and that's important. Yeah. But it's, it is really difficult to find any space in the city now that isn't already, you know, seized upon and, and the rents are way high or yeah. like the costs also, are Also, I don't know how, if you're working that much to pay that kind of rent, how you could be in your studio. I know. And especially with loans and stuff like all the payments yeah, you have going yeah. into it now, as opposed to maybe 20 years ago where it wasn't quite as oh, it wasn't anything. crippling. Well, <laughs> I mean, well, I'm more than 20 years ago, but when I went to college, it was like $220 a semester. Don't say I'm going to edit that out of the podcast. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I have younger people listening to this, and that's really? kind of yes. No, I mean, no, it's true though. It's it's gotten a lot different as far as yeah. you know what you come out of school with, you know. Really? With I mean, like, you know, all that. And everybody baggage. kind of comes out the same. Like when I got out of school, I I couldn't get I went for my first well, I was uh, the tech for printmaking. Mm-hmm. And I went to uh, one of the print studios in Manhattan and he wouldn't hire me. He said artists shouldn't be printing other artists' work. And wow, I thought that's altruistic, isn't it? Well, I needed money. I yeah. needed a job, and I was like out on the street crying. I thought, man, but I actually have these skills, and right. and you won't let me print uh, to earn any income whatsoever. So I think everybody, when they get out, no, I mean, yeah, it's even worse if you owe all this money. Right. But anybody who's supporting themselves is like, ma'am, like, what am I qualified to do here? Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the art degree has a certain skill set that you can apply to things. And if yes. the if that narrow group of options are refusing you because you should be <laughs> concentrating on your work, it's like, well, where am I going to? You know what I mean? Yeah, but also the skill set I think is bigger. Um, it is definitely, and, and I don't think students realize how many different things it can apply to. Yeah, know? which is nice because also they can think out outside of the box. And right. it's very hard to find people who can generate the work, can understand what needs to be done. Have I mean, now people have all kinds of computer skills mm-hmm. that they can use in all sorts of ways anywhere. Yeah, that's true. Um, and creative, there's a real sort of um, value on being creative and being able to think. Yes, creatively because all these sort of business these companies who are doing things want that creative edge or something that sets yeah. them apart or something yeah. that is pushing it forward because with so many voices 
you know, you want yours to stand out and being creative and, and, you know, being able to think creatively, I think is a real value to a lot of people these yeah, days. Yeah, no, it is. But it does take legwork and like a real sort of drive, you know. Sure. To go. So what was your first job? What did you end up doing? <laughs> I love first job stories. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of my first jobs was checking radiology badges at Cornell Medical Center. Oh, wow. <laughs> but what was funny about that job was um, the guy that I worked with, there was only two of us, and we were supervised by a doctor, but she was elderly and a little dotty. Mm-hmm. And the guy who I worked with was one of the leaders of the SDC, Students for a Democratic Society. Mm-hmm. So he was using the phones in the radiology lab to help organize all these demonstrations against the <laughs> Vietnam War. It's multitasking. That's right. <laughs> and um, so, like, we would, doctors would come in, we would, you know, take their badges, put other ones on. It was monitoring how much radiology they were exposed to. So that was one of my jobs. That's a, that's a first, well, that's not my first job. My first job was actually, um, it kind of, it's like goes around, comes around. My first job was working in the office of two architects who ultimately became very well known. One was Norman Jaffe, mm-hmm. and the other was Bruce Graham. And um, so I, 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 I type specifications. I could type, and I could be organized. And um, Norman Jaffe was very disorganized. And so um, I could kind of hold things together, and uh, I learned to read blueprints. I learned about specifications. Um, I worked from 9 in the morning to 1 o'clock in the afternoon every day, and then I went to grad school from 2 o'clock till 10 o'clock at night. Wow. And put myself through undergrad and graduate school. Mm-hmm. Those are busy days. Those are busy days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those first jobs, are, it's, it's, you know, you come and you try to make something happen, you know, which is, I think it's a, it's a real challenge, but it, it kind of gets your feet wet. I mean, did you feel, like, growing up, I know you didn't go to Manhattan when you were really young, but did yeah. you feel kind of eased a bit when you, you know, being in the environment that you ended up showing in and becoming, you know, an artist? Like, it's not like you were coming from Des Moines and you had to make the transition to the big city. No, I think I did. You know, I'll, I'll tell you about my first trip to Manhattan. Um, my two girlfriends from high school and I, we smoked Benz, Benson and Hedges cigarettes. Oh, my. That was like, <laughs> we were really sophisticated. sophisticated. And we went down to Manhattan to this restaurant. And I can't remember the prize fighter's name now. It was like a big deal. It was somewhere around Times Square. And... Um, I don't know what we ate. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, so we we probably didn't order much. Mm-hmm. And then the guy came over to ask about what he wanted want to drink. And I'd never been in a restaurant like this before. So I said, I wanted tea. And he said, how do you want it? And I, I didn't know how to answer it. I said, medium. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say in a cup. No. <laughs> it was like, 
like, medium. What do you mean? How do you want it? I mean, <laughs> I didn't even know there were options for tea. But um, well, that was safe. The safe bet, like was, medium. You know, it's in between. <laughs> it's not too extreme. Really, that could apply to anything. But no, he said no milk, milk. Mm-hmm. You know, sugar, lemon. I was right. like, whoa. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, did I ever really feel like I fit in? I think that. Um, now, when you get older, you don't care about fitting in anymore. It's like, but um, I think I never quite felt like I fit in mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons. So uh, I had two different kinds of lives going on when I got married. Um, I was teaching at Bennington, so I had a long commute to Bennington. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> Excuse me. And I took the bus up there. It gave me a lot of time to read, and I was taking classes. You could take classes up there for nothing, and mm-hmm. they encourage you to, you know, eat with all the other teachers. So it was amazing. You know, so like I, I had dinner with Bernard Malamud, and I would, and became friendly with Sue Ann Kahn, who was Louis Kahn's daughter, who's a flautist. And um, I studied German mm-hmm. with the German teacher. And um, so that was like a really exciting time in my life where they thought I was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, but at home, in a very different setting, um, my husband and his friends... Um, had a real problem with how successful they felt they thought I was Mm -hmm. showing with Susan Caldwell and doing these enormous paintings. I mean, the paintings were like 18 feet wide and 23 feet wide. They were, I got my first teaching job because they thought it was a a guy (laughs) who was painting these paintings. Okay. Macho scale. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so it was like day and night. I'd go on the bus and I would be treated, it would be so exciting, it would be intellectually exciting. Um, I'd come home and it would still be exciting because, you know, you would go to see all the shows. I, we used to read the New York Review, Review of Books and every afternoon talk about articles. Um, so intellectually it was all exciting. Um, but I won a Guggenheim when I was very young. Mm-hmm. And that caused all kinds of problems of, you know, people telling me I didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so. Who like, are you to get that award? Yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it's like, what do you do about that? I didn't know what to do about that. I just would keep trying harder <laughs> to mm-hmm. make my home life better. Yeah. And uh, so, in some ways, I didn't fit into. The, the longer part of the week, except with Susan Caldwell, and here were these older artists who thought I was terrific and my mm-hmm. art was terrific. Tony Smith and Doug Olson were the ones who got Susan Caldwell to take me on as an artist. And Marsha Tucker is the person who found out that I painted and came to my studio and put me in a Whitney annual. Mm-hmm. But besides, so here's that generation who were treating me differently than a generation closer 
to myself. And I think I always felt I was not socially skilled. I mean, I could do all the research that was possible and Mm -hmm. learn everything. But I had no social skills growing up. And um, I think that I still have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I'm fine at dinner with six people, but I'm not really good in working a room or, you know, being with a whole bunch of people. Or Like at one point, um, I used to teach at Princeton with this terrific writer, and... um, she, was, she decided to invite myself, my former husband, and two other people for dinner. She lived on the Upper West Side. And uh, so we went to dinner, and this was like straight out of the New Yorker. I mean, I am mm-hmm. telling you, this was straight up. This is only, what, five of us mm-hmm. in a round, small round table. And I had, and I was teaching at Yale at that point, and a big book on Bill Bailey had come out, and Mark Strand had written the intro, mm-hmm. uh, the poet Mark Strand. So he's sitting on my left. So I, I, I turned to him, and I said, oh, it's a real pleasure to meet you. I, you, I just read this wonderful essay you wrote uh, about Bill Bailey. And he said to me, if you think I'm having a serious conversation with you tonight, you are completely mistaken. And this was the beginning of the dinner. <laughs> awkward. Very awkward. And well, uh, that's not that is nothing on you though, and your social skills. That's more. No, about but that. I mean, how do you handle something like that? Uh, You're not going to fit in there. Yeah. You know. I probably would have said something to him. But, but I don't. But know. you don't want to ruin dinner, right? I didn't want to ruin yeah. dinner. But then the other person was Ed, Edward Gorey, mm-hmm. the cartoonist, yeah. and. Um, so they were all drinking, and my then-husband was quite over-the-top drinking. Mm-hmm. And he started insulting at Gory and saying how much he hated his work. Oh, <laughs> man. Like, this is a rough dinner. <laughs> this is a rough dinner. <laughs> this is a very rough dinner. So I think my inclination has been to avoid these yeah. kinds of dinners right. ever since then. Escape to the studio Yeah. <laughs> not have to deal with that. I think a lot of artists have that kind of you know, that dynamic of, okay, a lot of what I do is in isolation and in a room by myself in my brain, just using my eyes. And then there's this other side and it matters like going and socializing and talking to people and making connections and all that. And there's a certain ilk that you may not normally want to hang out with or that you can't relate to, but there really is a value in being able to navigate those waters yeah. in a way. No, there's a complete, is... complete uh, plus on that, but yeah. uh, but I don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, no. and the older you get, the less you really <laughs> care to, you know, uh, you know what I mean? You well, just I get thought it would direct. be kind of, like at one point, um, someone who shows on the Lower East Side, um, and she's a, she's a real sweetheart, and she's a very good artist, and she said, you should go to openings on the Lower East Side. I said, how many people my age are at openings on the Lower East Side? She said, one that I know of. And I said, who is it? And she named this painter. And I said, see, that's my point. <laughs> it's like, right. why would I be going to all these openings on the Lower East Side? You know, yeah. it's, 
I, I don't, it's just, so I get a lot of work done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess there's something to be said, too, for, uh, I mean, you know, as teaching, you can get a lot of energy from younger students and, like, thinking about the work in a different way. Yeah. You know, like, there's, there's something, there's a value in that. Yeah. And it's, um, I think it's potentially interesting for work to be seen in a younger or a different environment like that. Like, no, that if is. If you have someone who's making paintings and showing, like, larger paintings in Chelsea to that kind of crowd, and then you throw that you know, artist who's maybe been showing for like 20 years or something into a group show in the Lower East Side and yeah. it kind of activates the work in a different way, you know, or you you see it a little differently, yeah. which no, can be exciting. No, that's terrific. You know? I don't think it happens that often, though. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it does either. <laughs> it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good. <laughs> yeah. right. It sounds good. Also, I think um, it's different. I mean, most of, most of the people... Most students, mm -hmm. yeah, I think they're like, they, it, it, you're a teacher, it's all about them. Right. And so, I mean, just like that guy asking me what I was going to do, yeah. you know, over the break, it doesn't occur to them right. to think of you in another way. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. It's it's. I mean, when I teach, I have a studio there, which is kind of nice because I think they they see that I'm actually working. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully that kind of. And I remember when I was in undergraduate school, um, one of my professors was Julie Heffernan. Oh, and really? She, and she was always painting. in undergrad. Yes, and she was always painting in their studio, and 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 I could feel that kind of seriousness and the yeah. energy she had towards the work. And I think even though. Like, I didn't have her too often in class or that many critiques, but I just really learned about, like, wow, she's there all the time working. Yeah. And then when she's done, she's, you know, in that car going to New York, and I know she's working there, too. You know what I mean? There's something really inspiring yeah. about just seeing someone serious about working and, and being in that environment, I think, is key. Yeah. No, that's great. And, you know, as far as your development, being around people who are driven like that. Yeah. I think that's one of the, one of the real kind of benefits of art school even like graduate school is like being around other students who are taking it really serious and everyone's working and you kind of feed off that energy yeah because once that's over you know yeah, then the real world hits that's and right it is you and your box you know <laughs> and you got to go into that white box and motivate yourself to keep that work going and I yeah. mean you have friends in studio visits but it's nothing like the collaborative environment that school you know no. affords you no and a lot of times I, I it's sad but I see students who don't really realize it till it's over like what a gift having years to be uh, you know a studio and that space and that time and all those voices in your studio but you know sometimes you I guess you get tired of of that and you want to go off into solitude and <laughs> that's what the real world affords you you know is time to your own thoughts and you know and then at a certain point you pine for you know studio visits and then getting that community back I think kind of chasing that again yeah. you know for me it was like I think after I got out huh. of graduate school I was in school for seven years straight between undergrad and grad school by the time I was done with graduate school I was ready and then I did Skowhegan right after graduate school yeah so by the time I was done with all that I was ready for some alone time yeah and I think I went into like a bunker for about 10 years <laughs> maybe not 10 years but for a while where it was just me working in the studio like all the time and not too too many studio visits like a core group of friends but not like crazy busy studio visits yeah and then Ironically, having a child made me much more out there, 
you know, because I had to go to school. I had to make friends with other people outside of yeah. my circle. Yeah. And it, it made me way more social and way more socially apt. Like before I was kind of, you know, I don't know, like, like you're saying, I just wasn't that great in social settings. And I think that experience made me, forced me to become more of a people person, you know. And so it's, you know, I don't think a lot of, especially maybe artists, like men artists, talk about their kids and what they do for their careers or what they do for their work. But I think for me, it's been really a valuable sort of occurrence in my life, you know. Yeah, well, I can can see that because it's, you know, you see a child being excited. Mm Mm-hmm. And growing yeah. and learning. And Fresh eyes exactly. and the world. Yeah. It's really, I don't think people talk about it that much. And it's funny because a lot of people will ask, you know, mothers who are artists, mm-hmm. oh, what, what happened to you once you had your kid? Can yeah. you still work and all that? And, yeah. and you don't hear Did male artists being asked no. that, but it does have a big effect. And, you know, and it's, it's not just like the dudes who are like, oh, well, no, <laughs> I, got, I have less time in the studio. You know, it's an enriching, like an amazing thing that it... You know, and another thing that's great is before I had a kid, my life was all about me and my career. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you have a child, and it's like, oh, that stuff doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, like. Well, it changes. Yeah, yeah it matters, but yeah. not in that sort of egotistical way that it did. Like yeah. all you're you're really thinking about this other thing. And I think it's very different though generationally, and I, and you know, it's great that you talk like that because, mm-hmm. like my first husband. Um, None of those guys were thrilled about parenting. Yeah. I mean, it was just all about them and their time. Yeah. So, you know, things have changed. Yeah, I think that's that's true. that's a good thing. Yeah, I I do. It's funny because I was thinking earlier when you were talking about, you know, that seriousness and the intensity, maybe when there were less galleries and it was a tighter scene. Yeah, there were like two galleries. Yeah. (laughs) And like, you know, I I think back, oh, it must have been really amazing at that point to feel so strongly about like Stations of the Cross, like that kind of mentality towards a group of paintings and what they can mean. Like thinking about things like that, you know. And then how now it's just a lot of the critique is it's so diluted. There's a gazillion galleries. Everyone's an artist. But at the same time, there's so much more diversity, you know, there's a lot more diversity now. There's a lot more um, artists of color, women artists, you know, there's it's not just the, the core group of of guys, you know what I mean, who are making the paintings. So it's it's that kind of like balance, like what's better, you know, I mean, obviously now it's better in a way. But I mean, there was a seriousness and a, a sort of focus, I think, back then, too, that seems desirable in retrospect. How do you feel about it? Because you were kind of coming to age in a more, an environment more akin to that kind of male, macho, you know, smaller mm-hmm. group of galleries, small art world, that feeling. But there were people, um, no, I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, but there were, there were dealers well, first of all, dealers, I don't know, I never heard my dealer talk about having to sell art. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I think that in some ways a lot of the dealers were people who were more the temperament of all-time collectors. Yeah. They loved art. They just loved art. They believed in it? Yeah. 
They knew about it. They were excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, they loved. They liked artists. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, it seemed like there was a certain point that I thought, you know, I don't think dealers even like artists anymore. They would like to get rid of them so they just could, you know, ship the stuff around. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you would go off and you would have dinners together and it was just, um, it was like your family. Yeah. So, excuse me. No. <clears throat> so, um, that was different. And, um, I mean, Susan Colville was a really big fan of my work. Mm-hmm. I had a dealer in Chicago. Uh, she would give me shows, and she had a whole building, Jen Cicero. Uh, she was one of the main dealers in Chicago at the time. And she'd say, Francis, I want to, I want you to have a show next year, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, Jen, you can't sell my work. Why do you want to give me a show? And she'd say, Francis, I want people in Chicago to know your painting. And, you know, so... Imagine that. Yeah. So the people, you know, Susan could sell my work, but of course, work was very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and spaces were probably a lot more inexpensive too. Yeah, space was inexpensive, but you know, dealers used to do everything. Mm-hmm. So dealers took thirty-three and a third percent, and they paid for all the photography, all the shipping, everything, advertising, everything, and that was it. Yeah. And uh, you got, you know, the, even if they gave discounts, they took it off their portions. And um, people used to go and see work at, the, at all these galleries. And they would go and they would, they also knew what was going on. They would go look at shows. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just gotten too much. So nobody can do that anymore. Right. And we're busy with this stuff, you know, with like technology and a lot of people. Yeah. You know, there's a gazillion shows to see all yes. the time and there's all this other stuff we fill our life with. So there's less kind of like devoted time to that sort of well, endeavor. I think it wasn't less time. I mean, Susan had three kids and she took care of them. Mm-hmm. She was divorced. Um, she took care of everything. But... Because it was such a smaller world, you know, you I guess the main part of your life really was involved with also art mm-hmm. and um, and kind of being in this family and artists knowing other artists and even artists who were more successful always went into the galleries. It was very funny. Like uh, there were always these like what Tom Wesselman with every maybe every week or every two weeks, he would go into the galleries and ask them how they were doing. They oh, were really? not his galleries. Yeah. <laughs> Take the pulse of, like, how Yeah, going. he would just, you know, how are you? And, uh, I mean, people would just kind of know each other and walk around, and it was like a small town. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Tom, I remember when Tom came to my studio for a studio visit. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he lived on... He was a wannabe country and western music writer. He actually wrote country and western music. Really? One time I went to a concert uh, at O.K. Harris Gallery where wow. people were performing on his Broadway? music. Yeah, yeah. On, on West Broadway. West Broadway, yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it was all very, 
Like you knew all these people, you knew the stuff and you knew their dreams. And they, it was cool. Yeah. It was just very cool, you know? It was kind of hippie and cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Well, maybe that exists today. It's just more like the online community, you know? Like people know what people were up to based on Instagram pictures and Facebook posts and stuff like that. So maybe it's lost some of the personal, but there's like a wider net of a more connected kind of virtual existence or something. Maybe. I, I mean, I, I, it's different, you know. It's, it's really different because even though I only joined Facebook last fall, mm -hmm. I can see already like who only ever talks about themselves. Right. And I mean, people function in different ways on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... It seems like a, a little sad mm -hmm. if somebody's just always posting, like, "Oh, I'm not finished with this yet," or, yeah. you know, "It's here it is, and I did another one." And look at me! Look at me! Look at me! Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's not like a community, mm -hmm. and I mean, it's only a couple of times I've seen somebody get really nasty to somebody else on Facebook, mm -hmm. and then that kind of get gets pulled down. Yeah. Um, but like I know personally, I have to take a break now already. Right. <laughs> it's like yeah, I like. Out. I mean, I like I hearing. Too. I like seeing like the lives of all these form. Like I've got what fifty years of former students. I mean, I like seeing what people are what up they're there. up yeah. to. Yeah. And otherwise, I didn't really know that unless somebody else would send out a blast, you know. Right. And like everybody's having babies and. Mm -hmm. Somebody just got married a few days ago, and so yeah. I saw the wedding pictures. Which is nice to know about. It's really nice. You don't get press releases on that stuff. No, no. <laughs> you know? So that that was really nice, you know. And like when my husband was in, uh, had one of the roles in Daredevil, mm -hmm. and I posted that, you know, I right away got back. I didn't know that was your husband. I watched all of Daredevil, and that was your husband playing Hirochi. And I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was very cute, and. Uh, and like there's, I mean, I'm friends like from the film festival. The film festivals are different. Um, first, I mean, I don't know. They could be, you know, semi-corrupt. I have no idea. But like if I'm applying an animation cold mm -hmm. and, the, and that I get into a couple of them and go to these film festivals and... I mean, I have somebody writing me from Norway now and yeah. somebody, you know, two people from Canada. And I mean, it's really nice. Yeah. You know, seeing what they're working on. and uh, But see, then you can talk about what you're working on. It's not, I did this. Right. Like, um, I just got an announcement from someone. It's one of those announcements that you get when somebody says, my work is in this, and my work is in that, and my work is in this, and my work is... In... And like, you know, like growing up, when we studied literature, we were really exhorted to not use I. Mm-hmm. In writing, yeah, and uh, so here was this like relentless thing. I thought we can't, you, like we know from the first sentence that this is your work, right? Like you could just say, oh, and uh, in uh, this show, it's mm -hmm. not, and I, I have a painting in this show, and I have a painting. So, so um, it's it's marketing. Yeah, it it's is. not. It's not. It's, that's different from kind of being in a community and, you know, sharing some information. Yeah. And, and you know, there are artists, too, just in day-to-day -day life who are a little more 
better PR marketing kind of people who really push themselves and promote themselves. So yeah. I would imagine that transition is kind of a seamless one to you uh. know, the digital <laughs> platform of just being like, hey, look at me, look at what I did. Yeah. I mean, I try to keep a lot of my personal stuff separate. I think that's a good stuff. idea because, you know, like when people post and they even have the names of their children, yeah. it's like, why would you subject your children to, you know, any kind of person who could come up and say, hi, you're so-and-so, yeah. I know your father, you right, know, right. that's really, that stuff goes on. Yeah, so I think that's why maybe that could be seen as being a little more PR-based with like using certain platforms for you know your artwork and then other things for personal that are private you know yeah, yeah. but maybe it comes off that way but i think it's just a smarter way to do it so you keep some things to yourself and then you could still talk about you know have a dialogue with other people about things that you're interested in yeah. or doing or whatever it is i mean it's a balance i think yeah. all of it and it's you know i whereas sometimes i get annoyed at technology and certain things i i feel like if you can manage it and just you have to kind of evolve into it too you know, like I remember when I first started teaching and everyone had a laptop in their studio <laughs> and I was like, this is, does anyone use in their imagination or, you know, does it all have to be that way? But then like that frustration grew into like, a, okay, I understand that this is just a new tool, you know, and how you navigate it and how you use it is really important, but not being like the person who's like, ah, oh, these kids with their technology and yeah, you know, no, it's no. too much. No. But when did you, so, and one thing I would ask in relation to your work is because, you know, I got into animating after I got out of school. In yeah. school, I didn't have programs. I didn't have, I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. And I taught myself all that stuff. How did you start with animation and when did it come about? Um, it probably started um, 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <coughs> I had an idea <coughs> about, um, well, I asked my brother, I, I had an idea about, um, a relationship between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. And I asked my brother, who's a very good writer, um, if he would write one page, could be anything, it would be like exquisite core corpse and I would respond to it so he wrote this one page that was really heavy it was about the female character it was about the World Trade Center having come down mm -hmm. it was about the sound of the helicopters being so loud over the harbor and it was the two the man a kind of hippie guy picking up his wife after work uh, where she could see this whole scene because she worked down in Jersey City. And um, and it was um, the fact that she had to put her mother in a nursing home. So <laughs> my brother's younger than I am. Mm -hmm. So I said, wow, you're really getting back at me for being your older sister. <laughs> like, what the hell am I going to do with this? <laughs> like, I, at first I thought, shit, you know, this is so hostile. Like, this is like a horrible way to begin a script. Mm -hmm. And my brother was very funny said, hey, you're in a car, you can talk about anything. <laughs> so that actually gave me carte blanche mm -hmm. to write this whole script. And I hired somebody to professionally record all the things I needed. Uh, I, you know, I wrote the script, it was two characters. I play, I, I, you know, this is low, 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 low budget. Mm -hmm. 
my husband is one of the characters. He, he plays one of the characters in voiceover. I'm the other. I had the idea that um, I, they had built all this bad architecture all along the Hudson River. At first, I was going to call this vernacular. And I, it was a view from the passenger side. The, woman's, the man's driving. The woman's on the passenger side. And she's seeing all this bad vernacular architecture until they get to this door mm-hmm. that uh, after a, a, the commute after work. And so uh, the door could be their home, which was an anomaly. Like, why would they live in a place like that? Or was it a nursing home? Or was it the mother's home? So, it, so it's a two-day commute. And it covers a big range of emotions and interactions between the husband and wife and just how they talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So um, it took me... But my first idea about this was, like, I really liked some of the radio plays I'd seen in the early 70s that Mabu Mines had done. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I wrote the script as if it was going to be like a radio play, which was more play-like. And after working on this for three years, both hand-drawing every still of architecture and using uh, basically only a video editing program and audio editing. Um, I finished it, and it didn't work. And I and I'm really, it hadn't occurred to me that you invest three years and they're like, oh, this could be a flop. Right. <laughs> it was like, wow, like this is crazy. <laughs> you, you just worked on this. And, you know, and, and all the drawings were done with a, an 1800s pen dipped in India ink, <laughs> drawing all this stuff. So um, then I thought, well, you know, this was a bad idea, the screenplay. This has to be more naturalistic. So I rewrote it. I re-recorded it all, and then I had to re-edit it. And I was having a show in Chelsea, and it was two, now 2010. Mm-hmm. Oh, but before that, I finished this, and it got shown... Uh, there was a month-long festival in Atlanta called Festival of the Moving Image. Mm-hmm. And it got shown at Marshall Wood Gallery as part of the Festival of the Moving Image. And I, I, really, I really liked it. Um, I could have, you know, the, I, the question really was, should I have made it a smoother animation? Um, how much more would I have to learn to do this? But I didn't think I needed to do that because... There was such range in what happens between the two people in the car. Mm-hmm. So um, when I had this big show in Chelsea in 2010, they had a project room, and I showed some of the hand-drawn stills there with a monitor and showing that. The gallery had never done anything like this before, and they kept shutting off the sound. And people would go to them and turn and say, "Look, at, I, I want the sound on. I need it louder." Mm-hmm. And people would actually watch the whole thing. It was nine and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Now it's very unusual for somebody going into a video in Chelsea and watching it all. Yeah, it's you know? usually a drive-by. <laughs> That's right. It's a drive-by. Yeah. So here were all these people sitting in there, and they didn't want to miss any of this. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, David Brody, who I taught with. And he writes for Art Critical mm-hmm. now. He wrote me this email 
that was really kind of a wonderful response, saying that he'd never seen anything so honest and vulnerable in Chelsea before. <laughs> and that was this animation. And um, so that encouraged me. Um, but then I wanted to shoot a documentary portrait of an old friend of mine who at the time was 84 years old and having her first show of her work from the 60s in New York. Wow. And that's Regina Bogart, and she was married to Alfred Jensen. Mm -hmm. And when she left New York, you know, nobody really cared about her anymore. They yeah. cared about Alfred Jensen, but she painted it all the time. Mm -hmm. So here she was having her first show in New York of work from the 60s. And this, I didn't shoot this portrait documentary. I don't know if I even knew that at that moment, but something I just came to me that I wanted to kind of do something that was her own life as a painter. So I shot this, so I was taking a cinematography class and so that I could use professional equipment mm -hmm. and learn how to use it. And about two weeks before we were going to shoot, and I wanted it to be more like Agnes Varda because Regine is a real raconteur and she's very physical, or mm -hmm. was then. So two weeks before I have the camera and I'm going to shoot, she falls onto the staircase in her house and fractures her pelvis mm -hmm. in four places. <laughs> and she's on all kinds of painkillers. Mm -hmm. And she's on a, in a bed on the ground floor with a commode, right? But she doesn't want to give up the shoot. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so this has to turn into something else. Mm -hmm. So I can get her to sit on a bench that we put on, on the porch, mm -hmm. and I can get her to sit in the living room, and I can get her to sit in the dining room so over a two-day period, but not for long periods of time. So I have to turn this into more of a documentary. That's where I have to use photos and... Ron, my husband, drives me, and I leap out of the car, and I start shooting little bits of Manhattan that were connected to the 1950s and the 10th Street galleries and stuff like that. Like, we're almost in danger of my getting hit by all the cars. And she was the only woman who had a studio and was painting at, on the Bowery with Rothko and these abstract expressionists. Mm -hmm. And, like, so there I'm on the median line, and you know what the Bowery's like, and Ron yeah. is like stopped in the car and I'm on the median <laughs> line trying to videotape like we're going to the front of this building mm -hmm. and then Chinatown so I so I wind up with this 12 minute 20 second portrait documentary and it's 2014 and I'm retiring from Merlin Institute I'm mm -hmm. um, at the, my last graduation ceremony, a kind of perfect synchronicity is I'm reading the honorary doctorate to Yvonne Rayner, who I started dancing with in the late 60s, wow. performing with. Full circle. Full circle. Yeah. So that was really good. But otherwise, it was kind of depressing, mm -hmm. like leaving. It was right. like, just that's it, kaboom. But um, and Alice Aycock also got an honorary degree, wow. and she and I went, she was teaching for me, and she and I went to college together. Mm -hmm. So Yvonne, Alice, and I get on the train in Baltimore to come back home, and some guy very nicely gets up and gives us a table. Mm -hmm. and so we're there, and I turn my phone on for the first time. 
because it's been shut off all day. And there's an email saying, we were so moved by this documentary. I was with, uh, I was watching the, all the um, submissions with someone who's an artist who has cancer, and he found your documentary really inspirational. And uh, so we would like you to be in the Marfa International Film Festival. Nice. So that was like, okay, the door shut and a window opened, mm -hmm. all within the space of half an hour, basically. Mm -hmm. And we went, it was a five-day film festival. Um, so... And what year was this? This was 2014. 14? Yeah. Meanwhile, I had started another animation. Mm -hmm. And I just kept taking more and more courses to try to figure out. But this was also just, like, where did this come from? I, I, you know, it's, we rented um, a cottage on the northern end of Lake George. And it was very rough. But we could see down the hill to this little boathouse. And for some reason, and, and we were told that the area had been Native American Indian. And after that summer, this whole story came to me about a nine-year-old boy. Was, well, I didn't have the whole story. I kind of had half the story. And then I started to take an animation class with stop-motion animation. Well, this wasn't stop-motion. It was hand-drawn every frame. But, you know, then there was a big camera overhead to shoot every frame. Right. And then, you know, I learned After Effects. And then I learned, you know, other things. Mm -hmm. And in order to do this story, and my husband had directed five solo performances by a terrific actress and performer who was in a lot of who was in John Jesserin's Chang and Avoid Moon on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a live acting serial sort of play. That that kind of format hadn't really happened before, mm -hmm. and. Um, she, at one point, was Steve Buscemi's girlfriend. And Steve, this is where Steve Buscemi got his acting debut, was with John Jesserin, because Steve was a fireman. And, um, and so here, my husband was directing her solo performances after the Chang and the Void Moon, and I loved them. And I tried to get uh, Bob Sabiston, who had done Waking Life, to do something with one of her performances, but that didn't pan out. And Valerie gave me all of her VHS tapes mm -hmm. that I transcribed to mini-DV. And I, I just, you know, all these years, I wanted to use something. I wanted to do something with, with this. And she had given me carte blanche, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. She stopped being an actress uh, in New York and moved out to Oregon. And, um, but she subsequently acted on something else that John Jesser and did again at La Mama. But um, so the second part of this whole story, Johnny Under the Lake, meets this performance artist in a television set. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a scoped, a small section. Uh, she's miming to a radio program that's hilarious. And then I just used stills and recorded my voice for her to talk to Johnny. And this, this interchange um, changes his life. So, but you know, I don't know why a nine-year-old boy, why it's, um, I, you know, so I, I, and then this Ginger and Billy, you know, that's like that, this is, um, 
that uses my paintings because I'm painting throughout all this, mm-hmm. and uses them to build some of the sites where characters talk to each other. But the whole meaning of that graphic novel isn't a typical graphic novel. It's kind of in between how all these people act toward each other Mm -hmm. and her dreams. So how does this affect, or does it affect your painting at all? You know what I mean? And do you see them as sort of like similar narrative environments or are they totally separate or you know well I always I always saw the paintings um, starting after the late 70s where I was in many shows and even museum shows Mm -hmm. uh, and I had pressure on me to keep painting those paintings I couldn't keep painting those paintings so I needed some other way for me to develop the paintings so at the time, I was reading all of Mishima, and um, the quartet, Decay of the Angel, was, was very, and I was studying kabuki dance. I was mm-hmm. actually performing kabuki dance. And um, so I introduced, beside more hard-edge geometry that had veils of color that slowed it down so it wasn't graphic, mm-hmm. which the paintings were more complex, than looking like hard-edged geometry in the 70s. Uh, But now I was able to introduce some curved abstract forms that in my mind were Mm male-female that could interact in a more landscape-oriented abstraction. And that, that helped me kind of keep going that I could keep this freshness in my paintings so that I wouldn't keep repeating them. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, it was like 1990, I was, um, I was asked to be on the board of Triangle Artists Workshop, which Anthony Caro had started. But in order to be on the board, I had to experience the workshop, and I had never done anything like that before. Um, so I went up to Pine Plains and I was in this workshop. But I would get up very early in the morning and go to the barn. And um, Michael Fried hadn't written his book yet on Manet. And he was up there talking about what he was working on. And he was talking about Manet as a radical artist in relation to the artists of his time. Definitely, yeah. And, um, and I, you know, one of the films that was always very important to me was The Conformist. Right, here's this guy, totally unsympathetic fascist, but he wants to be like a regular guy. Right. <laughs> and you know, and I've always wanted to be like a regular person. Mm-hmm. And so here is, here is Michael Free talking about Manet. And then he came over, and nobody else was really at the barn at that point. It was just me, and he and I got into a conversation. And that was a moment that. I allowed myself to be okay with the fact that I was eccentric. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it wasn't going to change. And, um, you know, there's a downside to it. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you never quite fit in right. to what's going on. So, um, but that was helpful. And, um, and then from there... I realized that I had been compartmentalizing 
my brain, basically. Um, like when I was in college, I studied geology. And when I go and I see the landscape, like I can see stories. So I, I thought, I can use this to make stories. I mean, people don't have to know this, but at least it will help me not just do the same formula over right. and over and over again. Um, you know, I seem to need stories. So the paintings have stories. Um, the kind of experiential light in the paintings, the, my love of Italian primitive painting, which has been from day one, mm -hmm. from the viewer having different viewpoints and having to adjust. You know, at one point, I was kind of slammed in a show that my work was elitist because it took too long to look at it. <laughs> and it was like, okay, really? Yeah. I mean, everything I value, right? Right. Uh, was now a, a hindrance. A problem. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a exactly. A problem for the viewer. Yes, a problem for the viewer. <laughs> so, um, and that kind of unfortunately played into um, when Tom Wesselman came to my studio, he said, Francis, I love these works. I love these paintings. But, you know, they're too difficult. Like, people don't um, spend time looking at painting anymore. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so it's like all the, the values that you have yeah, in you terms do? of painting, uh, what do you do? Yeah. So you move to Jersey and you make <laughs> an alternate universe. You just do what you want to do. That's right. Yeah. And you're still there now with your current paintings? Is that kind of like, yeah. like what are you working through, just that? Yeah, well, you know, I just start. Like the, these aren't, draw I don't have drawings that help me figure out what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing that was helpful to me was, um, re, you know, decades, decades ago, learning about uh, Whistler, right? Mm -hmm. Whistler would still be painting on his paintings even when they got to a show. Yeah. And, and his having to experience things. Mm -hmm. and, the, and not being um, off-put by a blank canvas, right? We yeah. still all have these conversations about how intimidating a blank canvas is. But if I could trick myself into thinking that a blank canvas was like a piece of paper, mm -hmm. that, you know, it wasn't like a huge... I mean, sometimes it could be a waste of money. You just have to throw it out. But early on, I got into the practice of sanding down. You know, so a lot of sanding yeah. down. And people come and say... Wow, you just get these like this? You know, how do you get a painting like that? Right. And I said, well, I don't get a painting like that. It's like all sanded down and yeah, it's yeah. changed and Layers. it's, you know, it's like a struggle. It's horrible <laughs> until it looks like it was effortless. But, the, you know, and that's also a value from, um, from early writings about art, about how it should not wear all its turmoil, turmoil in it about how it came to be. Yeah, when you see a Hudson River School, like a, a coal painting or something, yeah. it if you really think about how complicated and difficult, but then it just looks like what it is. Yeah, like you, exactly. You work really hard to make it kind of look easy or yeah. just to be. Just to be. Right. Yes. Like that just happened. And no, it didn't just happen. That's it took right. a long time, but, yeah. you know, there's a real value to that. So what happens is I start something and then maybe... Um, something will come 
into some sort of reality, Mm -hmm. like, oh, the scale suggests this, or I could then bring this, that this part of the land had an eruption, or or like there used to be water here and it's not here anymore, or some great forces under the earth like did this, and there are sections that move from, you know, whether they're described or mapped or elucidated through volume or, you know, because also there have always been these separations of what's Eastern, what's Western, mm-hmm. all those separations of things, right? You know, East and West. East and, West and Color and color. Drama. Like we used to have fights as young artists. Mm-hmm. We would hang out in uh, luncheonettes and, you know, the automat. Mm-hmm. There used to be a big automat on Canal Street. And, you know, you'd be there late at night and it's like, well, you're either Delacroix or you're Ang. Like, you have to commit. <laughs> right. You're either going for color or you're going for drawing. Mm-hmm. And after, I think the first time I went to Japan was 1981. Mm-hmm. And, but before that, I taught at uh, Princeton for quite a few years, and they had a big screen collection. So I was very aware also of how, in some ways, a funny narrative happened depending on how you moved from one part of the canvas to the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the screens, you move from right to left. Um, I went on purpose to look at big processional paintings. Uh, I went to England to look at the triumphal procession of Caesar. I went, um, you know, I went on a pilgrimage to look at Fran- Pier della Francesca and Giotto and everybody, mm-hmm. and try to figure out even with. Cezanne about how the trees were in different planes depending on the weight of the line or the color of the line or so I always thought about all these kinds of things and now you know I that's I think of all those things but also can something be a in my mind a a, a fictional place mm-hmm. And if it doesn't get to be, to feel like a fictional place, then I have to keep working on it. Yeah. But it can't, but I don't want it to be surreal. Mm-hmm. You know, there has to be a kind of odd normalcy as if you're there. Right. Like it's, you can, it's believable, but yeah. it's not necessarily familiar or it feels. Yeah. There's like some I, I mean, that's, that's the sort of interpretation I get. Like this isn't a real space, but it feels like a real space, but I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. And then why? <laughs> and, and it has a kind of lyricism to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a, you know, and in some ways, a, something poetic. Yeah. Um, and a narrative, even without yes. the figures. You know, there's an, a pictorial narrative that I think that feels literary, too. Like that's why the um, you know the animations are really interesting too because I feel like these almost have that quality in still images. Yeah. Know? And I, for me personally too, working on animations, the same thing. It's like fueled the paintings. You know, like it makes you see things differently after making them move. Yes. And then you kind of relish going back to a still image and the power of that still image. But then you think about maybe compositionally or the time base and all those other elements and how you can sort of capture that differently in a still image. It's really like a nice cyclical way of working, I think. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, that's great. So it's rejuvenated your, well, not rejuvenated, but it's, it's, you know, 
imbued your your current work with a with more energy in a way, right? Like a more a different kind. Well, I'm of always. I used to say to my students, "What's going to get you up in the morning and get to your studio? It's not like, oh, I have to make some paintings for my dealer, mm. who may or may not sell them, and if he sells them, he may or may not pay me. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is yeah, that really exciting? That's not the cup of coffee. <laughs> that's <you need> not. <laughs> yeah, that's not what gets you into your studio. Right. You know, if you don't have these exciting things happening and you keep pushing, uh, then why would you just keep doing it? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always had to have that happening. Yeah. Well, conversations like these for me are very exciting and keep me <laughs> interested in making work. So I think you, you can do that any way you, you know, whether it's animation, whether it's going out to see music, whatever it is, yeah. you know, keeping that side active. Yeah. So you just started Facebook recently, but if people do want to see your work, get your book, see your animations, can you talk about that for a second of where they might be able to find your stuff? Sure. They can. Um, I just made a, a, another uh, place on my website mm -hmm. um, that says Video Plus. Mm -hmm. So you can actually, it has cans of film, film cans mm -hmm. on one shelf. And um, you can see the whole animation of end of the day, end of the day, mm -hmm. if you click on that. You can see the trailer for Regina. Uh, you can see the trailer for Johnny in the Lake. Um, I had to make Johnny in the Lake a, an official SAG film because mm -hmm. I didn't want to get anyone in trouble who's a union actor. Right. So I can't, sh I can't show it right. unless it's in film festivals. Just clips, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, you could see the trailer for that. I mean, I could show it if I was invited to be part of a college f festival, right. or, or if somebody wanted to put it together as an anthology. Then mm -hmm. I would have to, I suppose, renegotiate with SAG in mm -hmm. terms of royalties. Yeah. Um, I mean. I'm really glad I did that. I even took a course on producing indie films so that I would do the right thing. And also I worked with a, a sound mixing engineer That's cool. to yeah. make a really good audio track. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, so I mean, that was great. So you can see those things there. Um, paintings. Yeah, what about someone, a young student who wants to see your work in the flesh? Where can they go? Where will they be able to see your work? That's a, that's a problem. I. I'm in this uh, dilemma right now. Um, I, on the one hand, two years ago, I, was, I had um, five or six little paintings in the Venice Biennale, mm -hmm. so I was fantastic. Yeah. But at the same time, my dealer is really making believe I'm not around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, because he's not making money on my work. Mm -hmm. So... I sort of am in the position of having to either find a nonprofit space um, who will give me a show mm -hmm. because no one in New York has seen my work since 2010. Uh, except right now, Michael Walls curated a show, but it's out near Sheepshead Bay. It's mm -hmm. at the Kingsborough Art Museum, which is part of the community college out there. And it's a beautiful show. Is that up now? Yeah. And it's how a long gorgeous is it up show. Now? Good question. <laughs> if, if I was on the muck, Mark here, I tell you. I'll put it in you. the intro. I'll put it in the intro. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful show. Okay. I mean, I'll find you a card. 
Okay. And you can see who's in that. Um, I had a, a meeting recently with someone else who's a curator, and there are a lot of artists who are my age who happen to be female who are like, really? You would think, I can't believe that she doesn't have a gallery. Mm -hmm. You know? And uh, so one of them just had a show at a really good nonprofit, but now that nonprofit's closed. Mm -hmm. So at this moment, I'm not sure what to do. I mean, I like, you know, can I cold call somebody up? Mm -hmm. Can I, I? No, I don't think so. Right. So I'm just sort of trying to figure it out. I don't have that problem with animations yeah. or with, you know, that that's a much more transparent situation. Which isn't that like refreshing too to just be able to show your work yeah. all over like when I started doing animation I never thought about film festivals or public pieces but it's a great way to sort of connect with people and show work in different avenues oh know? it's it's wonderful it's really rewarding yeah I yeah I mean otherwise no one would get to see it yeah and you know according to my dealer no one's coming in to look at shows anymore I mean most places mm -hmm. they're they're just like going to art fairs art fairs yeah, yeah. oh boy so exactly. Where's so that? you're not going to get a sense of any more of what an artist has done. Yeah. You you may see a couple of pieces. Just snippets. Yeah. It's like the fracturing of of uh, a narrative, like a, a linear progression. Yeah. Of you anything. don't. You're not going to see a vision. Yeah. You're not going to see where it goes. Um, there's no more albums. There's just singles that are released digitally. You know, it's like there's not really. It's just, it's, I feel like that's the way we're encountering uh, information these days. Yeah. It's just like little snippets. I mean, I've made um, a catalog resume on my website. You, you need a password to get into it. Um, I thought that would be, my brother at one point said, you know, it's your fault. <laughs> he said to me that people, you know, they're younger and they don't know what your work was. And of course, there are people now who are doing what you did. Yeah, there's a in lot the of 60s younger and artists 70s. who are, would you know, really connect with, I think, your aesthetic and what you're doing. Uh, but but also the past, like some people actually rip off my work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, that's even happened at Yale, not my work, but there was one guy, each semester his work would be a different group of work. Yeah. And I'd say, like what, the last time that happened, I said, do you know Stuart Chudletsky's work? And he said, how do you know Stuart Chudletsky's work? <laughs> and I you said, you know who I'm looking at. <laughs> That's right. And I said, because he was very well known in the 70s. Yeah. And I said, but how do you know it? He said, oh, I troll art in America's. <laughs> it's like, I said, why are you here? Yeah. Why, why? Right, yeah. Why, why would you be doing that? I mean, yeah. you don't know how he got there, and you don't know where to go from it. Mm -hmm. So that's why the work, all of a sudden, would be a whole other body of work yeah. the next semester. Yeah, it's like a chameleon. Yeah. Yeah, that happens. But, um, so, you know, like, at least I can, if somebody is interested who also doesn't have historical knowledge, mm -hmm. but who might be an art historian or a curator or something, uh, you know, they can go and they can see actually yeah. all these installation shots from all these shows. And, 
And it, your website is your name. Yeah, francisbarth.com. And people can e- there's contact on there, right? Yeah. So people could email you and ask you exactly. if you could see if they could see your yeah your catalog. Also, um, in the fifties, Fred McDarrah came out with a book on artists of the fifties, mm-hmm. and uh, I was I had a dark room and I was had my Pentax camera and mm-hmm. I was shooting. I wanted to shoot artists of the 60s. Mm-hmm. So on the archive tab, there's downtown artist photos. And they're really nice. And there's all these cool. people who were there. But there's a lot that aren't because I, I have to find my negatives. Those were just ones I had printed that mm-hmm. I could scan in. So that's a, I mean, I, I stay awake at night thinking, oh my god, how would I clean, find these negatives, clean them, scan them in. There should be more photos. Yeah. But it's really nice. It's, it's a time capsule then. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's kind of fun. I, I didn't think of it as uh, a marketing website. I mm-hmm. thought of it as a story. It's like a storyboard. Right. You can even travel through different rooms and see paintings and they go up on the wall and down mm-hmm. and cool. uh, and you can see, see all this stuff great okay well um, yeah people should check it out your website is yourname.com and uh, I'll, I'll have that information on the podcast thanks so much for inviting me out here to your amazing studio it's been really great thank you so much Brian thank you studios, and exhibitions on the podcast website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. The introduction, narration, and music was provided by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lives. All other music was made by Lolotone, based out of Nagoya, Japan. Sound and Vision is produced, edited, recorded, and organized by myself, Ryan Alred. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening.